Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And on today's show, I'll be joined by more Irish and international experts who drive and analyse our world of business and our world of politics. And that was Candor and Ebbs. Money makes the world go round. It was certainly evident here in Ireland this week with Budget 2023 and across the water as the UK budget received a scathing review. First from the IMF, that resulted in a £65 billion intervention by the Bank of England. And it even had calls for a rethink on the budget package itself. So Sir John Curtis, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, is going to join me to try and unpick the political and the economic implications for both Liz Truss and for her government. And back home, this week the cost of living package budget doled out a record-breaking €11 billion. It seems to have ticked a lot of boxes so we're going to talk macro and micro taxation with Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Marion Ryan, who is Consumer Tax Manager with Taxback. And finally, with so many people now facing housing and rental issues, what about housing in Budget 2023? Did the government do enough to get the supply side moving? AJ Noonan, who's Managing Director of the Ronellen Group and former Chair of the Small Firms Association, is here to give us his take on Budget 2023 from a construction perspective. You can get in contact with us, as always, by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, it's been a really eventful week in UK politics and in particular for its economy. The budget that was just introduced last week by Kwasi Kartang was heavily criticised by everyone from the IMF to US economists. Some even went as far to liken it to a budget that might be produced by an emerging economy, which is a devastating critique, particularly for a party uh, like the Conservatives who kind of pride themselves on economic and fiscal responsibility. To analyse the political and the economic uh, machinations around all this, I'm joined now by Sir John Curtis, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. Professor, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Good day to you. Now, Liz Truss has said that she is not for turning, but there's a fundamental rule in politics, which is if you're going to do something, don't make things any worse. She started out with her government to try and help deal with inflation, help promote growth, help deal with the cost of living crisis. And now she has succeeded in piling mortgage interest increases onto the plain people of the UK. What went wrong, John? Oh, essentially what went wrong is that the government failed to keep the markets on side to give them enough signals just about what was going to happen and to test the waters before announcing these results. Now, the truth is the markets were willing to uh, accept that government expenditure was going to go up as it is in many a European country in order to deal with the cost of living crisis. So, you know, we have measures that have effectively capped the price of gas and electricity with the government paying the difference between uh, the price that's the maximum price and whatever proves to be the wholesale price. Um, We also knew that probably this government was going to want to engage in some tax cuts. That had been a central feature 
of Liz Truss's uh, leadership campaign, and maybe some of that would have been got away with. The trouble is that the taxation cuts, um, which of course are permanent, went much further than um, certainly had been signaled to the markets with a 1p cut off the basic rate of income tax. And controversially, if not necessarily f uh, with a great deal of fiscal importance, uh, scrapping the top rate of income tax on those on the highest incomes mm. from 45p to 40p. Now, that together, and also with business taxes, uh, a, a rise in business tax being cancelled, that in the end seems to have caused the markets to, to query what was going on because they're basically thinking, A, these numbers are not going to add up, i.e. that the government is going to run a fiscal deficit in the long run above what the markets are willing to tolerate and think is uh, a reasonable risk. Um, uh, and uh, that therefore, basically, the value of the pound went down and crucially the cost of government borrowing went up as the price of uh, government bonds went down and uh, thereafter it's been a story of the government trying to say but you know we are taking measures to uh, improve growth we're going to be making more measures announcing more things on, on the so-called supply side so things like dealing with the cost of child care perhaps increasing immigration although don't shout that too loudly um etc mm. um and it's only when you've seen the full package that you will realize that you know according to the government that the growth will indeed be sustained but the truth is the markets at the moment are not convinced that the growth is going to uh, arrive anytime soon that might be able to ensure that those tax cuts don't prove to be a long-term liability. Yeah, as you say, none of us can be surprised that Liz Truss was going to do this type of um, growth package. Uh, she's been very clear that she will pursue growth at any cost. I think, though, the speed at which she moved has surprised many. It kind of reminds me of that, the phrase that's often attributed to Silicon Valley, move fast and break things. And just trying to compare it to what Margaret Thatcher did in, in 1988, it's just the scale of what she was trying to do and the fact that this package was funded by debt. Ultimately, it, it, it destabilised confidence in the UK economy, didn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the honest truth, I think, of what's happened is what you have is a group of people who learned their economics at the um, uh, at the IEA, the, the Independent Economic Affairs think tank, which has long been a small, sta small state, low tax um, uh, think tank. The Taxpayers Alliance thinks similarly. Mm. So, you know, Liz Truss, uh, the Prime Minister, and Kwasi Kwarteng and the Chancellor were people who were particularly concerned about the fact that in the wake of COVID, which, of course, forced an increase in government expenditure that the, the longer term prospects for the UK were indeed for record levels of spending and record levels of taxation. That was the inheritance from the Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak uh, regime. And they were very keen to reverse that. And I think it's their ideological prediction to want to re uh, reverse the, re the growth of the state under COVID that co caused them to move relatively quickly, given you know there are only two years between now and the next election, and I think that explains their speed. Um, but perhaps what they didn't realise is that while what they might be wanting to do might be something that you could do in different circumstances when the fiscal finances were better, and indeed in truth when 
Um, as a society, there was evidence that came out from the British Social Attitudes uh, Survey last week that people in the UK have become somewhat more concerned about inequality in the wake of COVID mm. and the way in which COVID revealed some of the inequalities in our society. As it were, this was not necessarily the right moment for trying to do what they want to do, given that, above all, the first thing they'd had to do as a government was indeed to spend money uh, to increase government expenditure to deal with the cost of living crisis, which, of course, was something that for a very long time during her leadership campaign, Liz Trust suggested she wasn't wanting to do. So I think the truth is that their ideological prediction, uh, predilection, their mission got overtaken by events and they failed to realise fast enough that that indeed was what was going on. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Sir John Curtis, who's Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, about the economic crisis that's happening in the UK at the moment. Now, let's talk about the interventions which happened. Um, The IMF, first of all, scathing criticism of the UK government's mini budget. And then we had the really huge intervention of the Bank of England. So can you just talk us through what happened during the week and the implications of that intervention by the Bank of England? Yeah, I mean, the IMF um, reiterated what many economists have suggested and kind of already been outlining, which is that basically uh, they felt that this tax uh, cutting budget was going to result in unsustainable uh, reductions in revenue relative to the expenditure to which the UK government is committed and you know this government has so far not at least signaled any clear evidence that it's going to reduce um, public expenditure in the wake of uh, that, what, what it's inherited. Um, uh, the Bank of England meanwhile was ha- intervened because, and this is to do with the, the, the technicalities of finance that I would admit I don't fully understand, but essentially what was going on was that because of the reduction in the price of government bonds and given the requirement of pension funds to hold a certain amount of their assets in relatively liquid form, such as government bonds, uh, their the, the decline in their price was forcing the pension pots to sell these bonds, thereby reducing the price yet further and therefore uh, increasing the implied interest rate on government borrowing. Um, so that's the second way going there. Now, inevitably, uh, in any fi- a crisis, uh, a blame game goes on. Mm. And the truth is that, at least for some of those inside the Conservative Party, you know, the IMF is part of the general uh, orthodoxy of economics, which this government's been running about against, uh, an orthodoxy which they think is not uh, a million miles away from, uh, you know, the, the the outlook of the European Union. And equally, there's certainly been an argument going on, which was, you know, started to emerge during the leadership uh, uh, debate uh, inside the Conservative Party, that some of those around this trust feel that the Bank of England did not move fast enough to increase interest rates inside the United Kingdom, and that indeed, even last week, just before the financial statement, the increase in interest rates was rather less than was expected, mm. and was less than what the the Fed were doing in in the U.S. And so, therefore, they're partly saying, well, look, you know, the reason why there's trouble on the markets is the Bank of England's fault and it's not necessarily our fault. So, uh, you know, of course, that's politics. And in and, and, and today, in, in the attempts of the government to defend things, it's also pointed out how, you know, there is a global problem and that the Bank of uh, uh, Japan had had to intervene and the dollar yen rate, etc. Just trying to suggest that maybe at least it wasn't all simply the result of the uh, statement on Friday. But the truth is, I think... Uh, 
most people, most uh, professional economists feel that, uh, at least in part, Friday's statement is responsible. And certainly, you know, the reaction of the public to last Friday's statement has been pretty adverse. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, voters in the UK being told that, you know, the uh, national insurance would go back down and the income tax would come down. Oh, yes, great, fine, that's fine. But then ask them, um, do you think this, this uh, budget is fair or unfair? Well, by three to one, they said it was unfair. And YouGov have asked this question of every financial statement since the Conservatives came to power in 2010. And on that criterion of fairness, this was the uh, financial statement by far to be judged the most negatively. 60% um, of people said, we don't think these cuts are affordable. And only 9% of people thought that uh, Britain was going to be better off as a result. In other words, in the end, the reaction of the public was, this doesn't sound terribly fair. And in any event, we're not convinced it's going to deliver the growth that the government claims that they're trying to deliver. So that's problem number one for the government. Now, the question that we're now really asking ourselves is, what impact, if any, will the market movements and volatility of the last two or three days have on public opinion? Will it actually become one of those events like Black Wednesday in um, uh, September uh, uh, 1992 when the pound was, pound was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism or the banking crisis of 2007-8 when the, public's, the public uh, see the government in a sense out of control vis-a-vis mm. -vis the markets? And does this get seared on their memory in such a way that basically it's a cloud that hangs over this government the rest of the term. That's certainly what happened to John Major uh, after the 1992, after, and to Gordon Brown after the banking crisis. And if that happens, history suggests that basically this government stays a number. Now, I don't think we can be sure that's where we're at yet, although the loss of support for the government in the opinion polls is almost on a scale to what occurred in 1992. And there's also evidence that Whereas a week ago, one polling company was finding people thought, yeah, the Conservatives are the best, company, best party to achieve growth. Now, another poll today says, oh, no, now people think Labour Party are. So there yeah, and I, I want to there. just turn to the issue of the yeah. Labour Party in a moment. But just if you look at what's facing the public and, and facing the government, um, the, the intervention of the Bank of England will stabilise the markets, hopefully, probably not do anything to stave off increased interest rates. No. So what do you think... Um, this means for Liz Truss herself. Do you think that her position is secure? Do you think that her and Kwasi Kwarteng have to either hang together or they'll hang separately? Uh, what is your assessment of, of, of where she is at in terms of well, her premiership? You have to remember that Liz Truss only just managed to get on the ballot. Um, it was the top two of, uh, amongst MPs who got onto the ballot. She only got into second place in the last round of the leadership election fairly narrowly. So she doesn't start with a very wide base of support inside the parliamentary party. And her victory actually in the leadership election was one of the narrowest that's been achieved since the Conservatives have had that. Uh, a system of election. So she didn't start with a very strong position. No, and and, um, and, and her, 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 her opponent in that uh, contest toward the end was actually very critical of exactly this type yeah. of growth strategy. Sure. But, so I, but so I think the, the point is, she, the truth is that Liz, she, Liz Truss was in a position where, frankly, she needed to consolidate 
her position with their party by effectively demonstrating that she could help to recover their, their, the party's position amongst voters. She hasn't managed to do that. If anything, certainly her position is weaker. Now, however, the question, however, is this. Can the Conservative Party, A, afford yet another change of prime minister mm. in what would be remarkable speed? And if Liz Truss were, were to be brought down, could the Conservative Party actually agree on alternatives? So, uh, and it's not entirely clear as whether it could. And of course, the truth is that if the Conservative Party, you know, brings Liz Truss down, but cannot then agree on alternative, then basically we would head towards a general election. And at the moment, that will be electoral suicide for the party. So, But the timing, ti- the timing very fortunate for, for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party having their, their party conference this week. Sure. It's a really good message if they do have to start off with something like, we'll reverse tax cuts for the wealthy, isn't it? This could be his time. Yes. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, basically the Labour Party is benefiting from the fact that this government is uh, suffering yet another self-inflicted wound. I mean, the reason why the government is behind in the opinion polls is a sequence of self-inflicted wounds. It is Partygate um, uh, under Boris Johnson, which eventually brought Boris Johnson down. And now it is the statement of last Friday, the combined effect of which the Tories are now at the moment 15 points behind Labour in the opinion polls, which is further behind than they have been at any point since uh, 2010, when David Cameron first walked into uh, walked into Downing Street. Now, the extent to which, however, there's enthusiasm for the Labour Party, I think that's another question. You know, Sir Keir Starmer's personal ratings, still not that good. Nothing like as good as those of Tony Blair. You know, had you know 50% of people thought he'd make a good prime minister. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer's nowhere near that. Even the 15-point lead that Labour currently enjoy over the Conservatives is well short of what Labour was enjoying two years before the 1997 election. And again, in polling uh, today, uh, further evidence, it's been a constant cry from the electorate. We don't quite know what the Labour Party under Sakir Starmer stands for. So I think the truth is the Labour Party still has a lot of work to do to convince the electorate that actually it can provide the country with effective alternative governments. It's, it's doing well enough to profit from the government's misfortune, but it's not entirely clear it's doing well enough that it's necessarily sealed the deal with the public in the way that it was perfectly clear that New Labour had sealed the deal with the public long before the 1997 general election. And the truth is, you, you can look at what Labour Party's been saying about uh, the fiscal uh, problems the UK currently faces, and it's not entirely clear that the Labour Party's uh, position is entirely coherent either. And that's something that the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which is you know one of the, the, the principal commentating think tank on, on an impartial think tank on the on fiscal matters, it has pointed out. I mean. Uh, the Labour Party, after all, is actually in favour of quite a few of the tax cuts from which actually it will be the wealthy who be- who uh, benefit the most. Well, indeed, no doubt there is a long way to go on this story and we watch with interest what happens in the coming days. But for now, we leave it there. That's Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, what does budget 2023 mean for the national finances and your household budget?
You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, that was what happened in the UK, but closer to home, we had Budget 2023. And this year's budget was presented by the government as a cost of living budget. It was welcomed by many and the Fiscal Advisory Council themselves applauded the government for targeting those who needed it in the budget. But what does it all mean for the national finances and more importantly, perhaps for your own household? To discuss it all, I'm joined now by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Marion Ryan, who's Consumer Tax Manager at Taxback. Cliff, I might start with you, please, uh, if I can. The size of the package itself was record-breaking. But one of the things that uh, Pascal Donoghue alluded to in his own speech was where we get our money from. And maybe to head things off at the pass, he started to tell himself, talk about corporation tax. And when I was looking back at what's happened over the past three budgets, we've depended on corporation tax at the beginning of the pandemic, during the pandemic, and now for the energy crisis. So again, it's this notion that we're depending on corporation tax in the same way that we wrongly depended on property tax in the past. When, for you, does this type of pattern become habitual and we can't get out of it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. All right, it's the gift that keeps on giving over the last uh, the last few budgets, indeed, since 2015. Um, We've seen this extraordinary rise in corporation tax, which now represents about a quarter of all revenues compared to kind of the historical pattern, which would be 15%. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it really is a very significant part of our national finances now. And I suppose kind of to compound our our reliance, our exposure, if you like, um, the revenue commissioners have pointed out that uh, 10 big companies represents uh, more than half of all the corporation tax paid in the country. And indeed, we understand there's probably three or four, maybe five, who, who represent most of that. So the national finances are really reliant on a, on a, on a small number of very big companies. Um, I guess if, you, if we look back at the last few years, we've seen that we've repeated warnings from the Department of Finance and others uh, that we, we can't, keep, can't keep doing this, we can't keep relying on this source of revenue because, as you say, we experienced before in 2008 how, how, how a source of revenue can, can disappear, if not overnight, then, then at least very quickly. But the department is still forecasting uh, another increase in corporate tax revenue next year. And I mm. suppose the way they're, they're trying to square the circle is Pascal Dunne, who has persuaded his cabinet colleagues to start putting away money, to start putting away some of what's seen as the excess, if you like, in corporation tax. Um, so that when the either day does come, if the either day does come, uh, then there will be you know some some money there to uh, to try and ease us through whatever adjustment has to, is to come. And Cliff, were there any other substantive efforts made in the budget to try and actually expand our revenue raising efforts? <laughs> in short, no. I think uh, would be the would be the answer to that. I mean, there's the site levy tax and uh, or vacant site tax, should I say, and uh, Pascal Donoghue did refer to kind of studies he was going to put in place about kind of the revenue base in the years ahead based on the Commission on Tax and Welfare. And all the experts say that, you know, looking at the Irish population, the ageing population in the years ahead, the need to invest in the green transition uh, and the risk that we spoke about the corporation tax could ease back at some stage or fall sharply that we need to be developing or looking at new uh, sources of tax revenue. But in the middle of a crisis of people's incomes, uh, obviously the government was never going to do that. So the budget was all about 
was all about giving and um, <laughs> there was no taking it fast this time. Perhaps, um, perhaps sometime one, we're, we're going to have to address this. But yeah, perhaps one of the reasons why it's it's gone down so well. Absolutely. Um, Marion, just to come back to a conversation that you and I had a couple of weeks ago when you very ably explained to us the difficulties around introducing Leo Varadkar's idea of a new 30% tax rate. They didn't do that. They didn't rule out that they wouldn't do it in the future. But what did they do in this uh, in this budget for people in terms of taxation? Yeah, they they didn't rule it out. They kind of indicated that it could be coming down the line, it might be something for a budget 24, mm. budget 25 there, and um, which is understandable as well, I suppose, because it was in Leo Radker's kind of manifesto there for 2020 election that he wanted everyone kind of earning 50,000 euros or lower to be on the lower tax rate. So I suppose he's still aiming to, to get there eventually if he can possibly. So that probably will come. But what they, they did do a lot kind of, I suppose, for personal taxes there. So if I say for every income earner in the country, every taxpayer, they increase the personal tax credit and the employee tax credit by 75 euros each. So that's another 150 euros straight into people's pockets next year there for, for all taxpayers, regardless of your lower, middle or high income earner. And in addition to that, then they increased all of the cutoff points to, by 2,200 euros. So what does that mean? It means you can earn another 3,200 mm. euros that you'll be paying 20% tax on rather than paying the 40% tax out there. So it means that if you're earning under 40,000 euros, you're going to be paying 20% tax rather than the 40%, which is, it, it's really good. It's kind of a value of about 800 euros per person. Yeah, ju- so it's really something beneficial. Just looking at the tax package, which was worth 1.1 billion, was that was what was expected? Could they have done more on that front or is it largely in line what you were expecting? Yeah, it's kind of what we expected. I expected 5,000 euros for the cutoff point. Well, it's what I was kind of I was kind of wishing mm. for <laughs> along the way. And then kind of earlier in the week, then the, the rumbling started that it was going to be close to 3,000 euros there. And usually when the rumbling starts, they're usually fairly bang on. So I, I readjusted my wish list there on it. And in addition to that, they brought in the, the rent tax credit as well, Mandy, which is, is something that was really welcomed. I would have hoped they would have went further with that as well. There, but I suppose anything that's helping renters is going to be really welcomed. Yes, you and Sinn Féin hoping that they had done more and Micheál Martin saying yeah. that they've provided a base now. It might be something to, to build on for, for future years. Uh, Cliff, I might just turn back to you for a second here. The Fiscal Advisory Council said that unlike the UK budget, the government actually did a good job of targeting its resources towards those who needed it. But already some members of government are kind of out saying, well, we could look at things like the energy subsistence for next year. Are they kind of talking themselves into uh, an early budget for next year? And like, how often can they keep going back to this well? Yeah, I mean, everyone everyone was pleased to get a few quid uh, from spending or or from or from the tax package. Um, but I think there is one, one issue here, which is that a lot of the measures, four billion of the measures, if you like, are, mm. are once-off payments uh, or once-off schemes. So they, you know, money that will be paid to people over the balance this year or in early next year, are used to support companies over the same period. So then you're left in a situation, kind of saying, the spring of next year, if energy prices are still high, uh, and the once-off payments have have run out of steam mm. uh, or have run out, uh, what do you do then? Um, now, obviously, you know, the government can't see the future, and it is possible that energy prices will be will be lower than they are now. We don't know what we might be facing. And certainly petrol and diesel diesel prices do seem to be on the way down a bit. Gas prices, not so much. Mm. Uh, But I think that is going to be a big political issue is what happens next year. Because if 
energy prices and particularly electricity prices and gas prices are around where they are now or even a little lower but not too much lower the risk for the government is that households would be worse off next year than they were this year because they won't have the once-off payments okay they'll have some welfare increases and they'll have some tax reductions uh, but the amounts of money involved in those are, are, are a little bit less so um, yeah. I, I think there is a risk they'll have to go again all right and I think in framing the budget that was very much in their mind mm, I think thinking of the energy crisis in, as a once-off measure that they have to tackle is pointless. These yeah. energy markets buy two and three years in advance in some cases, and so those are going to be factored in for, for a couple of years now. I just want to look at that issue of if you had to build in these type of figures, an extra four billion into the, the national um, finances, then debt is becoming a big problem here. Um, I was looking at the figure for debt in 2008, which was 20% of the debt-to-GDP ratio, Again, the property market issues that were really affecting it. What's the debt to GDP ratio now? And when does that become kind of untenable, a tipping point? I'm asking that question because of the issue of debt in the UK and the implications that had had for the criticism uh, from the IMF to the budget uh, that they just delivered last week. But the gross size of our national debt is about 235, 240 billion now. And the strategy is to kind of top it out at that level over the next few years because we'd be in hopefully, as forecast in a budget surplus. Mm. So the difference between Ireland and the UK is that we were able to fund our um, our energy package uh, from tax receipts, basically, and from cash in hand, whereas the problem with what happened in the UK was, as well as a big energy package, they came out with this massive cut in the top tax rate, and basically borrowing is going to have to be used to fund all of that. And the UK, uh, the UK government is going to have to sell a lot more debt to the market, so everyone took fright there. Whereas, you know, the opposite happened here. The NTNA said after the budget, look, the budget's going to be in surplus. We don't need to raise any more debt this year. We're, we're shutting up shop. We'll see you next year. So there is a huge contrast between the two sides. Um, that said, you know, clearly there are vulnerabilities if the, if the energy crisis goes on. As you say, we've had to afford to be throwing $4 billion at household and business supports all the time uh, or every year. I think basically the government has a, has kind of a COVID strategy in its mind. Mm. Introduce temporary payments, maybe extend them once or twice, but eventually be sure and phase them out. Uh, and I suppose it's that aspect that is just an unknown at the moment because we really haven't got a clue where energy prices are going to go, what the EU might come up with, what restructuring of markets might mean. There's just so many unknowns there. Even the winter weather uh, was pointed out by the Department of Finance as a key risk. For, for gas prices mm. over the next uh, few months. So, you know, as well, we'd be as well off asking Joanna Donnelly as we would ask an, uh, an economic forecaster well, what's going to happen over the winter. It's a whole lot easier to give these type of payments, but taking them back politically is is a completely different uh, scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. They managed it during COVID, but I guess there was a, a clear thing there that the economy was shut and then it opened again. Yeah, and it would be finite. <laughs> Marion, I just want to bring you in there. Um, when we were talking about the UK and part of their raison d'etre for having a mini budget was to stimulate growth, but also to help people with the cost of living. This package from, from our government here is a cost of living budget. Do you think that, like for like, that people's pay packets as a result of these changes are doing enough to stay ahead of inflation? I think if we look at it as combined for all the measures they brought in, it was really a budget targeting families, the kind of the struggling middle income families there. And I, I think they did do well. 
there. Like if you take like into account the tax release that they brought in there along the way, but also as well the childcare subsidy, the double children's allowance, the increase in the welfare rates. They really are trying to kind of get money into people's pockets as soon as possible and get what we can in immediately and get it into the pockets next year to pay the bills there. So I, I think they did well. I, I'm reluctant always to, to kind of weigh in on things too much there, but I think they did well, like if you are a married couple with two incomes there of about eighty thousand euros combined, you're getting about sixteen hundred in your taxes back, and that's before any of the subsidies there. So it, it's quite a lot. It's much more than we ever got in any recent years or any kind of years that I remember. Anyway, there, like if there was another year and we we're getting that in a reduction in tax, there'd be a celebration. They'd be dancing on the street. It's just because it goes hand in hand with the cost of living crisis there that people are a bit more muted, I think, in their responses. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Marion Ryan, Consumer Tax Manager with Taxback. Cliff, just coming back to you um, on that macroeconomic side, do you think that this was a kind of well-balanced budget from uh, an international perspective? Did the government get the mix right? Yeah, I think they probably did. Uh, I mean, I, I expect there was a big fight behind the scenes in terms of putting money aside uh, obviously there's the argument to you know, why are you having a rainy day fund if it's slashing outside why don't you spend the money mm. uh, but clearly Pascal who felt and I think he was right uh, that you know we need to start strategically putting some money aside uh, because we can't end up in the position we ended up in after the financial crisis where suddenly things turn and we have to end up putting up taxes and slashing spending kind of on, emer- on an emergency basis and we're still paying the price of that and the housing market, for example, so we, we just can't go back there again. We see the, the word prudence kind of coming back into the narrative a little bit more now. We do, yeah. I mean, it is, it is a mixture, or it is a reflection, I suppose, of the extraordinary growth in tax revenues here that they can give away, or spend 11 billion in, in once off on permanent measures uh, and report a budget surplus and put, you know, plan to put 2 billion away this year and 4 billion next year. Uh, you know, so we are in a in a golden period, I think, for the Irish Exchequer, despite the problems we face. Uh, and let's just keep our fingers crossed and hope we get a few more years out of it to get us out of this energy crisis and, and to get some of the kind of the key housing and health spending that we need uh, planned and hopefully implemented. Cliff, before we go, could I just get your assessment of what's happening over in the UK? It's been a really extraordinary week. We were talking earlier in the programme about it, but what could be the knock-on effect of um, the increase rises in inflation, rises in interest rates over the UK? What implications could that have for our economy here? Not as bad as they would have uh, in the old days when we were part of the sharing earlier, obviously. Um, back then, there were huge Irish investments in UK shares and government guilt. You know, there would still be Irish funds invested uh, and Irish investors with investments in the UK, so so bad for them. There may be some other financial links via the IFSC or otherwise um, that we'll, we'll see in the next uh, few weeks and months. And I'm sure the central bank is managing, is, 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 is overseeing that, and uh, the ECB as well, and, and the regulators at a European level. And obviously it's, it's you know, it's not good news for Irish exporters, uh, particularly SMEs selling to the UK market, because sterling is weakened now. Not as much against the euro as it has against the dollar, but it has weakened. And you're obviously selling into a market which is where consumer spending is going to be under real pressure now. Despite the tax cuts, it looks like they're going to be completely offset by really big increases in UK interest rates and a kind of a a bit of a chaotic situation in the market mm. there. So that's not good for Ireland, I don't think. 
Well, a solitary lesson uh, when you're looking at politics and economics that things can always get worse. For now, we'll have to leave it there, though. That's Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Marion Ryan, Consumer Tax Manager with Taxback. Marion Cliff, thank you very much for your insights today. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. Up next, we'll talk to a property developer about what budget 2023 means for their sector. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, housing is one of, if not the biggest item on the government's plate at the moment. Really complex uh, nature of getting more houses onto the market is something that is often looked at from the buyer's perspective and indeed the political perspective. We seldom hear the property's perspective, but it has occupied and exercised many people. So have the government done enough in this budget or even anything in this budget to encourage more building? And what are the challenges that face the property sector? Now, I'm happily joined in studio by AJ Noonan, who is Managing Director of the Ronellen Group, and he's also a former chair of the Small Firms Association. AJ, thank you very much for coming in to us today. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Now, I was looking at some of the property industry figures uh, over the last couple of months and excluding COVID-19, in July 2022, we actually saw the sharpest decline in the construction activity in Ireland for over 10 years. So can you just give us an overview of what's going on in the property well, sector? I think a lot of it is to do with the inflation um, and interest rates are the two big drivers of that decline. But it's more of a pause, I would suggest, than a decline because I would say that there's a number of big projects are, are really contributing to that. There's a lot of smaller projects still going ahead. The viability issue is really coming to the fore in terms of a project is anyways marginal now at all, it's dumped. It doesn't get passed. We still have huge, huge needs in terms, of, as you say, housing, infrastructure, the water, grid, transport. So it's... I would suggest it's a pause as opposed to a steep decline. Mm. And that viability issue, that's very important, isn't it? Because uh, when you look at the increases that are happening on the supply and material side, when you look at the inflation wage and the wage increases, when do projects uh, start becoming unviable from a kind of building perspective? Well, uh, obviously, when the margin, if the margin is below um, a certain percentage, it, it, it becomes um, unviable to continue. And, and, I mean, there's an enormous amount of contributing factors within the building of a house or the building of anything. And one of the biggest contributors is the state. It takes about 50% of any three-bedroom house. They take a huge chunk of it in terms of development charges, in terms of VAT, uh, in terms of water. I mean, water, Irish Water was set up in 2014 with a revenue uh, structure around it, which hasn't been maintained. And developers have now become the new... Uh, revenue source for Irish water and they need enormous investment I mean we need this country needs enormous investment over the next 15, 20, 30 years in our wastewater treatment and our water treatment and it is probably one of the biggest obstacles to providing housing uh, in this country So what type of projects is your group involved in? What's the scale of them? Well the range I mean we're involved in a cost rental project in North Dublin uh, we're in early stage development on uh, two big infrastructure pieces, one in the Midwest and another in West Dublin. So it, it ranges, it, it depends um, at any one time and at a long time. And so so for somebody like you with a diverse kind of portfolio, when you're looking at Budget 2023, do you think there's anything in it that would actually, you know, r- restart yeah. those type of projects to be that fair, may be to be fair, To be fair to, to government, I mean, I think we, we have to look at it in the round. Budget day is only one day. I mean, there's been, uh, in, in the broad infrastructure piece 
of government contribution to the housing sector that's huge. And I mean, I think we should stand back and recognise that as a country, we're doing quite well. We have growth. You know, we've been through a number of major crises in terms of COVID, in terms of Brexit. And I think, you know, we should stand back and say, look, we have the resources. We're running a surplus. We have the resources now to do an 11 billion budget. So we're we're the envy of a lot of our European neighbours, even though it doesn't feel like that sometimes. Mm. But you were quite critical of of government a few moments ago when you were talking about what are the other contributing factors that stole projects. But um, if you're looking at this from the other side of the the fence and you're a buyer and you're looking at property developers uh, increasing costs in line with inflation, in line with the wage and material issues that we spoke of, um, do you have any sympathy for I've people who are facing sympathy. those issues? I mean, I, I have a daughter of a house buying age almost herself now and she doesn't see a, a great future. But I mean, I think what we should probably look at is mitigants. I mean, why is the price of houses so much? What can we do to, to change that and make it more affordable for the next generation? And I mean, we're we're not planning properly for that. I mean, all our development plans are based on it since the 2016. It is completely irrelevant now. Mm. We do not have enough zone land. So we need to rezone any land that's serviced. I mean, there's a number, there's a, a town in Kildare, for example, that has a population growth over the next eight years of about 10,000. They had 2,000 planned mm. for zoning and they dezoned 500 of it. Like, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, what's wrong with height? I mean, I mean, if you go to any American city, you'll see 40, 50 stories. But in Dublin, you know, there's a pathological opposition to going over maybe 9 or 10. Mm. So 40, 50. I mean, what about mortgages in Japan? They do 70-year mortgages. Could we look at something like that as a potential to just make an affordability issue and the repayability? And remember, that's going to be the big issue coming down the tracks is the banks are squeezing in terms of the the repayability uh, um, piece for buyers. So that anything that makes it easier. I mean, we look at, I listened to Minister Harris this morning speaking about student accommodation. Charlie McCreevy had a very, very successful Section 50 student accommodation piece all those years ago. Why not do that again, where you have a whole lot of planning on uh, college campuses and off you go. But can you see from a a government or political perspective how, you know, they might be afraid to again get into that sort of um, mix with developers and property developers where they start offering tax incentives and it might drag them reputationally, if you like, back to 2008, 2007. Uh, Do you think that that's what's causing the crisis? I I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean... The Department of Finance has 100 years now of proudly saying no. So I, I'm not certain about that. I think there, we are in an emergency situation. We should be looking at every option. I mean, if you if you keep looking back, you're never going to go forward. Hmm. So look, you could talk to the dogs on the street about this. They'll all come up with the same answer. It's supply, supply, supply. Um, when you hear the government talking about the targets they have for 2022-2023 given everything you've said about uh, the pause nature of a lot of projects do you think that those figures that the government are presenting are realistic? I, I think they're ambitious targets and, and there's nothing wrong with targets I don't think they're going to be met for the reasons I've outlined we don't have enough zone land we don't have enough water it's not going to happen and until we fix our planning system which I think we'll discuss later then we're not going to get the action we need mm. it's an impossibility and just in terms of how, you know, investors who you might partner with from outside Ireland are viewing our country now, are you getting a sense that um, there's more of a focus on the regulatory process and how much that uh, 
gobbles up time and money and, uh, you know, is there a growing aversion to coming here? Well, I don't think there's a growing aversion to coming here because we are, at the end of the day, a, a good, stable democracy. I'm not certain how long that'll last, but we're a good, stable democracy. I mean, there is certainty. I mean, certainty is the key for any investment decision. Am I going to get my money back? Am I going to make a return? Is my taxation treatment going to be fair? And is there a market? Is there a buyer? Well, well there's, yeah. there, there is a force. But yeah. that's, I mean, from an investment point of view, yes, that's, that's the biggest question. Yeah, but that's know. the biggest question. But yes, there is. And there is plenty of money out there all the time. But it's going to be, it's a tightening market. And, you know, we're going to have competitors uh, for that capital travelling all over the world. So it's not, it's not a simple, easy peasy bureaucracy. It's, it's big. It's a big issue for every investment decision. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to AJ Noonan, who is Managing Director of the Ronellen Group. AJ, just coming to that issue of planning, um, something that I think has bedeviled the, the industry and not just this industry, lots of industries who are building infrastructural projects is um, this issue of judicial review. Can you just talk to me about the prevalence of that in, in the kind of building landscape at the moment? Well, I, I think the best way to look at it is in very simple figures. In, in 2019, there was 508 units in Dublin in judicial reviews. By 2020, that had gone up to 5,800. So, I mean, that figure is startling. And it's, it's, it's a huge issue for the industry. It, bring, it breeds fear. And fear, again, is back to the investment decisions. I mean, are, are we going to be jailed? Uh, is someone going to rock into the High Court on a Friday afternoon? And I have great sympathy for the judiciary in the sense that it's, it's done on an ex parte basis. And once it's in, you're in the system. And it can it, delay you for 18 months to two years. You just talk to me how, how that works. Like So so how does it, do you factor J, J or A? Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, it's factored into every uh, uh, plot of land you look at in terms of like, from the day you look at a site to the day you build a house is six years in the current environment, which is startling. Uh, and the SHD process, uh, sorry, the judicial uh, review process is as a result of the SHD legislation. And Water finds a level because people have objected or made observations to their council, and then but they, they have could a right appeal to object, it. Absolutely, they, yeah. and they, then they appealed it to a board planola, and they accepted what the board planola said, and that's why you had five hundred and eight as opposed to five thousand eight hundred. Mm. And then along comes SHDs, and the democratic element was removed, and judicial review became the objection process. And our government doing anything to change that system? There's now? a review at the moment. Are you, you don't sound optimistic. I'm waiting. I mean, there are very simple solutions. I mean, the board planola decisions should be gone through a tremendous legal scrutiny before they're issued to the applicant. There should be a planning court a la what, the commercial court. And maybe there should be a, a planning court a la the labour court where there'll be a mediation piece. I mean, I, I don't have anything against objectors. I mean, mm. so be it. They are, they're entitled to opinions. But I mean, when you spend anywhere between 250,000 and 2 million doing a planning application and you have every BAT report in the world that you could imagine and every drawing and every engineering drawing, it is really very challenging. And then you, we anecdotally, you understand that a lot of these community groups and these environmental groups are kind of targeted by the, the left in you know, Irish politics for political gain. I mean, how true it is, I don't know, but it's, 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 it's definitely an element. And, and so just turning to a bit of forecasting, if you would, you've been in this industry for a long time. What would your projections for the activity in the next kind of 18 months? And, and by the way, sorry, just about budget uh, 2023, what did you make of the levy on concrete? Oh, the levy on concrete. I mean, the, first of all, I, I don't think the ordinary punters should be picking it up. But 
at the same time, if it's picked up, if there is going to be a levy, why don't we use the levy to re- remedy what the cause of this was? The double IRS was abolished in the mid-90s. There was no problems with bricks before that. And we should re-establish it to have minimum standards for the industry. And that if a brick goes into a house, you know where it came from, there's a certificate. And because then government will be a player in the industry. Mm. Um, but I think there was an interesting comment from John Paul Phelan from the, the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party where he said, you know, only in Ireland could you see somebody levying concrete and, and cavity blocks in a building crisis. Is there that sense know, in the construction I know, industry I know, that, I know, oh I, God. It's, but sure, it's just another cost. I mean, it, it's but it'll adds, be, pa- it'll be it, passed. Uh, of course it'll be passed down. Of course it'll be passed down, but just another, it'll add four or five grand to a house, I gather. And do you think there's any sense that the government might reverse that? I don't know. I'm not certain it's the biggest issue on anyone's agenda in the sense that I, I would much prefer if they ring-fenced whatever funding they get to increase standards in the industry and make it easier for developers and builders to make sure the product that they put into houses is properly certified. Yeah, I think it's going to be a big issue for someone paying an extra three grand for their apartment Abs- though. Absolutely. Um, just finally, uh, AJ, I wanted to talk to you about what's happening across the water in the UK. Obviously, a really oh, monumental week. Yeah. yeah. What What do you think about um, the effect of the intervention of the Bank of England is going to have in the property market though, over there in, in the UK? Uh, uh, I, I think that they're in for a torrid time. Their interest rates are double hours at the moment. They're, I think, 4.4, we're 2.2. So we're, we're very lucky that we're in the Eurozone area. I think their policies last week were, uh, people describe it as a gamble. I mean, it doesn't, it isn't a gamble. It's, it's economic suicide in an awful lot of ways. I think there'll be opportunities for Ireland. I mean, do you? I do. I think investment will be scared of going into the UK at the moment. So therefore, we, I mean, we've pulled in something like 75% more of our investments since 2013 when they started the Scottish referendum piece. Mm. So uncertainty has been around the UK since 2013, but I think it's only going to get worse, mm. in my opinion. And, and finally, have you taken a look at the Sinn Féin proposals in relation to housing and what is your view on those? Do you think right. that they might do something to make things better? Right, let's look at Sinn Féin for a second. Sinn Féin are a party that are campaigning in poetry and hopefully would govern in prose. So, and no one party or no one policy is going to fix this. I mean, one of the most disastrous decisions that a minister has made since he came into power was abolishing co-living. It was a very small part of, of a big, big puzzle, but it was abolished overnight. Instead of being reformed, instead of being restricted, but abolished. And that was pandering, again, to, to some kind of daft utopian policies. They're successful in Barcelona, they're successful in Manchester. Uh, I, think, I think Sinn Féin probably think they have some very good ideas. They will bring uncertainty, there's no doubt about, in terms of their taxation policies are not perceived to be investor friendly and uh, I think I don't want to use the word despise but there's a yeah, I was probably not that far away in terms of like I would say a lot of people in the business community feel they're despised by Sinn Féin Really? Hmm? A lot and, of them are planning to leave And, and okay with that in mind uh, in, in looking at the figures it almost seems inevitable that they're going to get into government in the next couple of years. So where does that leave the prospect of supply improving and increasing? Well, I mean, supply won't improve or increase no matter what political party is in power unless the actions that I've outlined earlier are taken. That's, that's, that's just a fact. It's, it's to do with zoning of land, it's to do with water, it's to do with grid, it's to do with all of those things. So that, that won't matter. They won't solve it. Uh, they're not miracle workers and no one is. Um, I think we have to give everybody a chance. I mean, if they're in government, they're in government. Mm. Uh, and we'll have to see. But I do think it will lead to a certain amount of uncertainty in the investment community. And they, So they'll wait and see. You know, it, it just, that's the word, uncertainty. Okay, well, 
Uh, we'll leave it there and AJ, no doubt, we'll be back to you in the future to talk about uh, this industry again. But for now, that's AJ Noonan, who is Managing Director of the Ronellan Group. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available on a Friday morning on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us as always at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy with Hugo da Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be reviewing all of your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.